RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today's interview comes to you live from ADE, where RA interviewed techno legend DVS1. Zach Kudaretsky is originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he started throwing parties locally before joining the international touring circuit. He's now hailed as one of Bergheim's most popular DJs. He's known for his deep and versatile techno sets that have amassed him thousands of followers around the world, and he's released on Clockworks, Transmat, and Oscaton, in addition to his own imprint, Hush. But he's not just an artist. Zach has garnered a reputation for speaking out critically about his opinions on the challenges facing the electronic music community, notably through his essay about the battle between art and entertainment, and more recently, through the inauguration of his revenue-sharing platform, A-Slice. In this exchange with journalist Christine Kakare, Zach talks more about the platform and the impetus behind it, as well as its underlying tendency to be a quote-unquote fixer, from the problems in his house to the issues he sees plaguing his community. Zach also talks about the Wall of Sound, an experimental, continually evolving project that replaces the DJ at the front of the room with a stack of speakers. Zach is known for his love of good sound systems and how they push him emotionally, physically, mentally, and have overall changed his perception of music. He uses 808 kicks in his productions because, he says, they hit you lower on your body when the music is amplified on that level. Notoriously committed to his swung style of mid-tempo dance music, he also discusses today's high BPM arms race and why he continues to feel inspired by the beat of 133. And the first time I remember playing in Bergheim, you know, I started pitching everything up and everyone kind of didn't know what to do with it. But to me, over 133 and a third created groove where there was no groove. It created swing where it wasn't necessarily put in. So maybe that track was written with no swing or groove. It was just a straight 4-4 kick. But once you pass that 133 and a third, you got natural swing. Zach seems to have endless energy and a mind that doesn't stop generating ideas. At 47, sober, and seasoned through decades worth of failures and extreme highs and lows, today he's at the top of his game. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is DVS1. Hi, everyone. It's really wonderful to see so many people here this afternoon. My name's Christine, and this here is Zach. Hi. <laughs> also known as DVS1. So looking forward to digging in and uh, getting to know you a little bit better and answering a lot of the questions that I, yeah, would love to pose to you to get to know more about you, your art, your philosophies, your values, etc., etc. I'm ready. Let's Excellent. Do it. While I was preparing for this talk today, there was a quote that kind of kept returning to me, and I, I don't know the origins of it, but it's something along the lines of inspiration perishes when ideas have no actions, something along those lines. And that was really kind of repeating because it seems like you are somebody who is uniquely inspired and uniquely prolific in that inspiration and also in the actions that you go forth with. So hopefully we'll get an opportunity to talk through all of them, but just to kind of catch everybody up. You started out in the Midwest, in Minneapolis, throwing your own parties. You created Hush, which is kind of like a, an umbrella sound system, record label, creative entity, 
moving forward to the 2000 and 2010s. There's a couple of projects that you started off enjoy right now, which is something we're going to talk about, something we were just talking about that we're going to pick up again, talking about the people's engagement with the club setting and also with the DJs. You also created the Wall of Sound series of events in 2017, which I believe was pretty closely inspired by your roots in the 90s rave scene. In 2019, you created Support, Organise, Sustain, which is SOS, which is an organisation to kind of foster things like this, like conversations about the culture. And in 2022, A Slice, which is something that I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I should interview you. You know more about me than ever. You you have it down. You have it down. But going through all of this and collating all of this information, I was really, really curious to ask you, what kind of a thinker are you? Is all of this, is this just like the cream off the top? Are you somebody who's constantly generating ideas? Are you like a ruminator, a deep thinker, a slow burn kind of person? Um, are you a problem solver, like a solution-oriented person? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I can't sit still. COVID was very hard, I think, even as an example of like sitting still. And that's when A-Slice launched. But the reality is, is I'm always thinking. There's always something on my mind. I'm always seeing something. And I would agree with the statement you made. I- I'm a fixer. If I see a problem, whether it be something as simple as something broken in my house, I just can't let it be broken. I have to fix it. That extends all the way down to the community that I'm a part of. If I see something that I feel like I can do a better job or find a solution for, I need to explore that idea. And I don't remember where I read it either, but, you know, the person who has a, a thousand good ideas but doesn't pursue any of them, what are those ideas worth? For me, it's having all these ideas, but then picking and cherry picking the ones that I think are really the top or the things that I can have an effect on are the ones I end up pursuing, are the ones that I end up putting my time and energy in. And I think in my, I'm in my 40s now, in my 20s, I think I was invincible and can do everything. In my 40s, I think I have to maybe be a little more selective and pick and choose, but I'm still stubborn. Mm-hmm. And when I see a problem, I want to fix it. <laughs> Let's start at the most recent work that you've put out in the world. And then we're going to kind of maybe go through your life and your discography in somewhat chronological order. You put out a record not so long ago, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and it was the first release since you put out an album in 2020, which we'll also talk yes. about in a moment. And as I was researching this, I was struck by how passionately and eloquently you talk about your relationship with sound and the presence of sound in what you do. Is this something that also translates to being in the studio? I mean, I think so. You know, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we are the sum of all of our influences. And because my specific influence, which we'll end up talking about the wall of sound, was, you know, I experienced my first electronic music not on the wall of sound, but I experienced it on good sound systems. And then I experienced it on an amazing sound system, which pushed on me physically, emotionally, mentally, I mean, really changed my perspective of music. So in anything I do, whether it be the tracks I'm listening to to DJ with or the production of music I'm releasing, I think I'm subconsciously chasing that feeling that I got. I, I'm, I'm imagining this simple kick drum on a massive sound system of 30, 40, 50 subs and hitting you physically. So 
I remember talking about in some interview and somebody asked, you know, why do I, why do I use these really low kicks? Because I remember the low kick, this 808 kick kind of hitting you differently than that 909 that hits you in the chest. The 808 maybe hits you a little bit lower in your body and is a little bit more warm and rounded. And I even catch myself in the studio sometimes, which is probably why I have tinnitus on top of many other reasons. But, you know, I will end up putting my head up to the speaker and closing my eyes and just imagining it amplified on that level. So absolutely, I think everything influences. And I always said, like, DJing and producing is a language to me. So it's how I talk. It's how I paint a photo. As a DJ, I feel that I am at a high level because I've been doing it over and over and over and trying to master it over all these years. As a producer, I always say I'm not as eloquent, maybe, as I am as a DJ. But I think I can get my point across. And I think my point, maybe, is those experiences. Mm. I think you're giving yourself a hard time there <laughs> by saying that you're not eloquent in the music. I was listening to the EP again earlier, the Hush EP, and there's one particular track. But just even listening to no, it on no. earbuds, there's this real sense of like moving air. There's this real okay. sense of like a kinetic, rhythmic loop that's kind of taking you to one place and bringing you back over and over again. So I think you're being a little bit, a little bit hard I, I, I mean, it's, you know, the, I've always said that, like, I'm a beat and rhythm guy. I, I don't even want to say I'm house or techno or this or that. I love beat and rhythm. I come from hip-hop, from R&B, from soul, from disco, from everything that was about the beat and the rhythm. So in the music I end up making, to me, it's also just beat and rhythm. It's loops. And I remember Rod Medell, an artist from Detroit, you know, really amazing dub artist talking about like the way he would decide if music was really good is it would be a loop that he could listen to for hours and hours and it would manipulate, change and move on its own without him needing to even do anything. And that was the perfect loop. So when I sit in my studio, I write things in loops and I try to capture whatever I'm feeling at that moment. Like there's nothing wrong with going into the studio with, let's say, a direction you want to go. But for me, it was just let me catch my feeling and emotion and thought today. I'm not trying to make this style or this style, but this is what comes out of me. So that track you like, whatever that day was, whatever I was feeling that day or that week or was influencing that emotion, I just tried to capture that loop. And once I have the loop that I think can sustain then I open it up and expand and just, just subtly jam and subtly move things and let them flow a little bit. But in the end, they're a beat and rhythm tool for me to DJ with. Mm -hmm. I was listening to an interview to that point uh, where you said that when you're DJing, you don't want songs, you want tools. Can you yeah. perhaps explain that a little bit further? I found that to be really I mean, I, you know, I find myself like at the end of my sets, maybe I'll play a song that I will truly let play out and have its moment. But I grew up on DJs who, they worked, they, they mixed, they were constantly in the mix, in the layer, EQing and manipulating and drawing out feeling and emotion. So for me, a tool allows me, to, a, a tool is a color, and a color is a part of a bigger painting that I'm drawing for that period that I'm DJing. So I maybe look at those things and imagine that I don't, I want to be able to choose when the breakdown happens. I want to be able to choose when I want to just sustain the drums, or I want to choose when I want to bring the energy up. And maybe a song has three different elements or moments into it where it goes from the crescendo to the intro to the outro. I don't want that. I actually just want tools so I can choose 
when the right moment is to express or change a direction or move up or move down or go left or go right. Mm -hmm. My favorite artist, and when I listen back to my favorite records, those were tools. They were, they were just a perfect loop. And so I'm trying to, again, my influence makes me want to replicate that mm -hmm. and give myself those, those pieces to play with. And is that a realization that came to you like earlier on in your kind of arc of your career of like, it's the loops and it's the tools? I would say early on, I couldn't say that I knew why I was attracted to those things. But I, if I look back at all the records I bought in the 90s, there was something about that loopiness that attracted me. That was the record that I bought. I think maybe as I got more mature as a DJ, I could vocalize it and describe it sitting here with you, why I want those things. At the time, I didn't know why, but I was attracted to those things, and they were already becoming part of my tools of expression. When I listen to your tracks, and particularly when I listen to you playing, and I feel like also in conversations generally about you as an artist, there are two words that often come up. One is swing and the other is groove. Yeah. What, what is your relationship to those two terms? Are this, is this something that you claim for yourself? It's not even that I claim for myself, but I notice that, you know, same thing. I notice I'm attracted to the groove and to the swing. Groove because I come from groove. Swing because there's something in that syncopation that happens. And I, and I actually said this in an old interview that, like, you know, old school records had a, the perfect lock groove was 133 and a third BPM. And that was the way to get a perfect lock groove on a record. And when I first started touring internationally, techno at the time was much slower. It was like 128, 129 was the Bergheim techno sound or whatever. And the first time I played there, I actually tried to start at the BPM I knew they were at. And after about five, six records, I just found myself pitching up. Now, in today's standards, I'm slow. But back then, I was fast. Mm -hmm. Because my first records were 135 BPM. And the first time I remember playing in Bergheim, it was really my first big international show, you know, I started pitching everything up. And everyone kind of didn't know what to do with it. But to me, over 133 and a third created groove where there was no groove. It created swing where it wasn't necessarily put in. So maybe that track was written with no swing or groove. It was just a straight 4-4 kick. But once you pass that 133 and a third, you got natural swing. You got natural percussion. And, you know, going out to hip-hop shows when I was young and going out to all these places where there was groove and soul, especially in R&B, I'm attracted to that. Like that, that makes you shake in a different way. Like I'm not hating on anything that's current or new, but when I look at certain BPM ranges, you know, when you get to 160, 170 drum and bass, you can find the half time in it and you can swing your hips in the half. When you're at 130, 135, you can kind of find this groove that you can lock into. When you even go slower, you can also find this interesting groove. There are certain BPM ranges where certain grooves even go away and actually your feet are planted and all you can do is just kind of shake. But you're not actually, I mean, we play dance music. I want people to actually dance. However they want to express themselves, I want them to dance. So, yeah, I'm looking for groove and swing. Mm -hmm. Seeing as you brought it up. Uh, all right, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just touch on the, the techno speed arms race that's been yeah, going on yeah. for the last couple arms of years. Arms race is a good way to put it. <laughs> I mean, personally, I've, I'm kind of in two minds about it, but I would love to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I thoughts. mean, okay, uh, uh, let me preface it by saying, to me, pure house and techno and even hardcore or any of those pure 
initial genres that the our culture was built around, pure drum and bass, you know, the, the earliest forms of it, everything comes back to the most pure level all the time. Hypes come, hypes go, things change. Out of every little hype or momentum that comes, you're going to get a handful of really amazing artists that will push the boundaries in those things. And I'm sure right now I am seeing some artists who are pushing the boundaries of speed, sonics, and other things that are amazing. And I hope that they will continue on that path. But the arms race of being faster and harder just to say I am does nothing for the culture of dance music, does nothing for the growth of artistry. At that point, it's just entertainment and an arms race of who can say I play faster and harder. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, COVID enhanced a, a certain moment of TikTok and Instagram viewing 30-second clips of like harder, faster, let me show you what I can do. But put that on a dance floor for a certain amount of hours to a crowd, and I just think it, you know, unless you're really pushing sonic boundaries and blowing, you know, some consciousness out of their people's brains, at some point you're just beating on them. Mm -hmm. You're just hurting them. And uh, <laughs> I hope things keep moving. I hope other hypes come too, because again, out of every hype, there will be a creative group that will come out of it. So. Even this current hype, I hope another hype comes too. I love seeing these little hypes pop up. And maybe this one is not even little. I can't call it little. It's big right now. But yeah, I want to see the creative side of what comes out of these new genres or new ways of displaying dance music mm -hmm. and see who can really push those boundaries. We're going to talk about social media, etc., in a little bit. Yeah. But let, let's step back a little bit. You talked about where you came from, it's soul and groove and... I find the whole idea of like Midwestern techno to be so fascinating because it's like this kind of disconnected but also connected, very region-specific thing. But I, I want you to tell us a little bit more about Minneapolis. Of course, there's references like Prince, for example. Yeah. But what, what else was kind of touching you in your formative years musically? You know, I mean, just, just imagine, like right now we're all connected by the internet. So it's very easy to quickly see into and find insights into what's happening totally on the other side of the world. In the era that I learned about this music or was even being raised by music, I was limited in my ability to see what was happening in other parts of the world. So my influence was what was accessible to me. I, I could go to New York, I could drive to Chicago, I could witness the American scene. You know, a couple times I came for a family trip to Europe and got a chance to find a European event and witness it. But other than what I maybe read in a paper print magazine every so often in my local record store, I was limited to what I had in that space that I could experience. So those influences kind of became, you know, what's beautiful about Minneapolis, like New York, we always hear a reputation of New York, you know, the history of Detroit, the history of Chicago. Minneapolis is within reach of all those places, but is never one of those places. So we are also not limited by our reputation. We have an ability to take anything we want from anywhere we get influence and make it our own. And yes, Prince is part of our history. Also like, you know, old hip hop, old bands and indie groups and I call Minneapolis an artistic incubator because Minneapolis is one of those cities where a lot of artists start their career. They get creative in Minneapolis and then they leave maybe because mm -hmm. they, they don't get the opportunity there to become whatever they're capable of. 
but it is absolutely the, the incubator. Like when you come to Amsterdam or you go to Berlin, how many of those artists are from Amsterdam or Berlin? They move there because it's a melting pot for all these beautiful cultures and, and opportunities. But Minneapolis is, I don't know, it's, it's home turf. It's unique in the fact that like we get to define whatever we want. We don't have to live up to the Berlin sound or expectations of media. We just get to be whoever we want to be. And I think that breeds a lot of unique artists. Like there's only one prince in the world. Mm -hmm. He was bred in Minneapolis mm -hmm. and he always referenced Minneapolis as such an influence on him. You know, so I, I think coming from those spaces gives you a unique perspective and a unique voice. Mm. That was really interesting what you said, this idea of like a creative brain drain out of a city like Minneapolis yeah. as people like move towards the bigger centres. You were still very much kind of located in Minneapolis for up until the, I think you said the end of the 2000s when you I mean, I was, I was coming, yeah, I was coming to Europe starting in 2009, but I mm -hmm. kept... My first five years of touring were intense because every two weeks I was flying back to the U.S. and I was in and out every two weeks, every two weeks, every two weeks. And that was heavy. 2015, I made the choice to base myself in Europe. And that's when I moved my studio to Europe, moved a few records, not all of them, but a few, <laughs> and started being primarily in Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, was that a conscious decision on your part to maintain your presence and maintain your connection to Minneapolis up until that point? I mean, it was. And even till today, I won't go into it too deep because it's secret, but in the context of I still keep a connection in Minneapolis three or four times a year, I head back there and I do a proper underground event there. And we don't advertise it. You won't see it on social media. But that's my connection. It's very important for me to keep my roots. And I even said it during the pandemic. If all this touring ended tomorrow, I have that hometown. I have the ability to go back to my home and continue to do what I love. And I think that's maybe even something that's missing in a lot of places now because a lot of artists see I want to be a DJ, but they don't actually spend the time maybe to create some community kind of something to come back to if their big dream doesn't end up happening and everyone's shooting for way up here. I never wanted, I never thought or imagined I would be touring for a living. I never thought I'd get to do what I love. I wasn't even trying. I never imagined sitting on the stage with you. So all I wanted to do was just express what I loved and I got really good at it, I think, because I did it regularly, locally. I played Bad clubs, good clubs, opening slots, closing slots. I learned how to do sound, lights. I, you know, cleaned toilets at my party if they were flooding because who else is going to do it? You know, and the thing is, I think when you see it from all those different perspectives, it also gives you a different appreciation for the success you get when you get it. Right. In previous interviews that I've watched and read, you kind of focus a lot on the idea, kind of is attached to what you've just said now, you know, paying your dues perhaps or just giving yourself time to become a bit more seasoned, I suppose, in what it is that you're doing. I'd love to hear you talk. Yeah, about I mean, I mean you know, beyond even paying your dues, like that's even a whole separate thing. I think as human beings, just, uh, you know, I don't know whoever's listening, whether here live or in the future listening to this, you know, our views of the world change. Our views of ourselves change. In our 20s, we're, let's say this is a stereotype that at least was fair, right for me. In my 20s, I was trying to figure out who I was. In my 30s, 
I knew a little bit more of who I was and tested the water of like, is, is this who I thought I was? In my 40s, I'm confidently who I am and I don't really care what else is around me. I'm gonna live my, my version of me. I only got there through time, experience, negatives, positives, failures, successes. And I think in music, you know, I've heard it in different ways, but I'll quote Jeff Mills on it. You know, Jeff said it takes 10,000 hours to become a master. I've heard writers say it, I've heard photographers say it, I've heard a lot of different people say it in different fields of life. And so I think just spending time knowing who you are, discovering who you are, trying things, failing at them, succeeding at them, and letting yourself be free to follow whatever taste or direction your brain and body takes you are really important. Because I think if, let's say in my 20s, if I would have found success, I would have been very influenced by what everyone else was doing around me and what the media said was cool and what everyone said I should do on social media and how I should act. In my 40s, I don't care about any of that. you know. And in my 30s, when I found my success and started touring, let's say 33, 34 years old, I had just enough of that confidence and experience and probably close to those 10,000 hours to be able to walk in the room and, and do what I do at the level I do it. Mm -hmm. Do you think also being in your kind of later 20s and 30s as you were joining this touring circuit, because one of the first questions I often ask artists is, how do you do this? Yeah. Being on planes every single weekend, being isolated, being in um, contexts that are not your usual context, yeah. do you think that helped you to navigate that with a little bit more kind of resolve or kind yeah. of... Yeah. You know, at the same time as I came up, there was a handful of artists that were also coming up. I'm going to say five or six from America specifically that came up at that time. And without naming anybody... You know, about half of those artists were going out every weekend partying hard. And the other half of us were, this is my opportunity. This is my moment. I'm taking it really seriously. Like, as much as this is my passion, it is now potentially my job. You know, I was 20 before. I partied. I did things. I've experimented, tried plenty, and even overdid the things I loved and enjoyed to have those experiences. But now, I, I just, I don't drink. I don't really take anything. I smoke cigarettes. That's my worst vice. And the thing is, is that I treat it like I need to be professional. I have to show up to my gigs. As much as life can get complicated, I can be depressed one weekend, I maybe don't feel like it, but I'm gonna give my best and I'm gonna show up. And luckily, because of the things I chose not to include in my daily routine of, of partying, I'm in a position where even if I'm tired, I can get up. If I need a coffee, that's all I need to get going. The moment I feel the subs in the booth, I'm up, I'm, I'm ready, let's go, you know? And, and luckily I have this kind of unending energy that allows me, I think, to do it at this pace and at this level, because it, it's not easy. Like, don't let any artist tell you it's easy and uh, tell you it's second nature, because getting up on one hour of sleep and running to the airport and dealing with that is tough sometimes. Mm -hmm. And being social is tough because, being in environments around people, they take your energy. And if you're aware of that, it's hard not to give your energy. But the more you're aware of it, you can retain it. Because really, in the end, you know, people will tell you maybe you need to socialize. But you don't. Your job is to show up and play your heart out and play what they booked you for. The dinner, the socializing, the partying in the green room, and all, none of that's necessary. Really, you're an artist. Show up and be an artist. Mm -hmm. I feel like somebody wanted to <laughs> applaud. <laughs> 
and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You have to live out your experiences, positive and negative. So I'm not dogging on anyone. It just at 46 years old, almost 47, I've already had those experiences. And this is part of that. My success didn't happen until my 30s. In my 20s, I might have fallen victim to some of the things I'm talking about. But in my 30s, I was confident enough and especially in my 40s, I know my limitation. I know exactly where I want to put my focus and my energy. And I, I'm blessed to be able to do what I love. So there's no way I'm going to fuck that up. No way. Speaking of taking your time and taking it seriously, you mentioned Jeff Mills before. So I want to ask you about, uh, I believe, your only artist album that you've released. It's the only album. In 2020, Beta Sensory Motor Rhythm. Why was that the moment for the album? Is it just because when the wizard calls, you just say yes? Bingo. There we go. The thing is, is I always said I was never going to write an album that because my view is just I want tools. I just want things for the dance floor. But when Jeff Mills calls you and, and asks you personally, you, you change your opinion. <laughs> and... Uh, and I was very happy to, and I was very happy to be challenged. And I got really lucky also of the timing of his request, because again, COVID had just started. A Slice was just in its infancy, and I just had enough of a moment to breathe to do something creative and focus and get that out of me. Because as you said at the beginning, it's been three years since I released anything because A Slice really took over all my ability outside of my free time. And to get this release out even that just came out a couple weeks ago really took a couple people pushing on me mm -hmm. and being like, listen, put something out, you gotta do it. And luckily I had some music that was close to being finished that I could go back to, but you know, I'm still struggling to find the time to come back to production. And I always describe it as uh, there's Business Zach and Artist Zach. A Slice has made Business Zach be the most prevalent outside of my DJing, mm -hmm. but I really wanna go back to being Artist Zach again, because I fought hard to get that. So what's the way forward then, do you think? Because A Slice, as you said, is still kind of in its infancy. I think it's just past the one-year anniversary. So we're, we're actually at just about a one and a half years. We're going to hit two years in March of public. But I've been working on this for like three years now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the way forward is, you know, I've been funding this project myself. And during COVID, probably the worst time ever to try to fund something when I'm making no money. But I got creative and I figured out a way to do it. And now I'm also you know, being very open here, all my DJ fees go to support A Slice and grow it and continue to evolve it. And now that we've proven that it works, the next step for us is to find funding for the project, which we're going to start doing in the next couple months. And, you know, ultimately my goal is to continue to stay in the morality control seat of where A Slice goes. But financially, I need to hand off that responsibility to somebody else and be able to grow the team and be able to grow the project and see it to its full potential. But I need to be able to just make sure that the, the direction it goes stays within the moral compass of where I started it. Mm. That seems some, like something that's potentially tricky, just in the sense of, as we started off with, yeah, I think you're a very valued and principled yeah, yeah. and idealistic kind of person. But when it comes to kind of conceiving of your own projects, launching yeah. them and bringing in other interests, then... It can always be tricky, but I'll, yeah. I'll use a great example for that. Everyone's seen in the news right now that Bandcamp was sold for the second time and half the staff was fired. Now, the difference is Bandcamp was sold twice. 
I'm not selling a slice. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for financial investment into the project that we have, but I'm retaining the moral control of it. And it was a question that was actually asked at the early on when we were introducing a slice to the artist community was who's funding it? How is it ran and who makes the decision? And I'm like, 100% me, 100% me, 100% me. And that allowed people to trust me. And I'm not going to, just like my DJ career, I'm not going to um, do anything to screw that up. I'm not going to do anything to devalue the trust that the community has put into me. So I could continue to fund it, but I need to take some mental health breaks. I need to take some physical health breaks. I need to be able to take care of myself to be able to be the full potential of my artistry. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I need to be able to make sure a slice is taken care of, but I'm gonna make sure to stay behind that and I'm not selling it, just getting investment for it. So that's the difference. Maybe for the benefit of those here who Please. might need like a, a one yeah. sentence summary yeah. of, of what a slice is, at what point did this idea or this concept occur yeah. to you and like how long did it take to get it from a spark to fruition? All right, so I'll make this as quick and as short as possible. So first, let me tell you the story, and then I'll explain what ASICE became. So the reality is, is that right before COVID started, basically, I was just noticing that, like, the typical, you know, artist's uh, social media game, and I was really fed up with it. And I decided, like, instead of thanking everyone for this great opportunity I had, I mean, all my fans and all that, I really needed to thank the people who provided the music that supplied me to have and create these experiences on the dance floor. And that little core idea ended up, you know, kind of falling to the wayside, but then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, I could take that idea and expand it. And I realized if I could build something for myself that allowed me to, let's call it, share some of my profitability and earnings as an artist with other artists who provided me the music, then why not? And so ultimately what we built was, you know, I hate to use the jargon and the slogan of A-Slice, but we built a fairer music ecosystem. And it's basically a way for DJs getting paid at any level, whether that be the $200 bar gig or the $20,000 headliner. They can choose voluntarily to give a portion of their earnings. And then the technology that we built breaks down all the tracks in a playlist and ultimately spreads that money equally to everyone on that list. Instead of talking about your breakfast and your cool travels and, you know, taking Instagram videos without giving credit to the music, this is a way for people who are earning money off the backs of others to ultimately support them back beyond just the thanks or downloaded for and actually be like, hey, I respect the work you did and I get to do what I do because of you. So let, let's work together. Let me let me pay you a little something and let's connect the community back on music, art, culture, instead of Instagram and, you know, Facebook likes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pausing for applause. <laughs> so when you initially had this idea, I'm really curious to know, like, was there a range of responses from people involved in the scene? Because I think... Also, within this kind of electronic music culture or paradigm or whatever, that the DJ plays such a unique role in that they're performing but also curating. So it's kind of like in between this performance and curation. And as you said, it often involves the compositions of other people. So, yeah, what was it like when you started telling people about this idea? It was funny. The first time I told 
let's say the first five closest people to me, I was so excited because I'm like, this is such a, and, and you know, COVID gave me the time to think. COVID slowed me down from traveling every weekend so I could go deeper into my thought and find a solution like we said at the beginning found something broken. And when I called those people and I was so excited about this thing I came up with, they were all shocked. They're like, it's so simple, actually. Why did nobody else do this? And then the further I spread those questions out and asked some people in the industry, they were all like, damn, that's really good, actually. Like, why not? And that's the biggest thing that I think we're all moving so fast. Like, how many of us actually even you know, our brain has already removed the negativity that we experienced during COVID when our whole world was locked down because our brain subconsciously removes the negatives because they're painful thoughts. So, you know, we all think the world is great again and we're all moving so fast and we're moving from A to B and, and looking at next year and the year after and all these things. So I just think the ability to create something in that moment that like can actually make change and is actually really simple. And then our goal was to build it as easy as we could for the community to like try it. And the best compliment I get from artists when they try it is, damn, I thought that was gonna be harder. And wow, I thought that was gonna take more time. And then they do it and they're like, that was really easy and I feel really good. And then on the reverse, the connections that they make. So I just think there's, there's something to, you know, we had to do it. And the response was really good. And I don't expect everyone to jump on board tomorrow. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. This is going to take time for us to fix something that has been broken for 40, 50 years already. It just in DJ culture it was even broken in other cultures before that with bands and music royalties. So we're up against Goliath, but I, I don't give up easy. I find it particularly interesting, like with a slice because you're somebody who is often looked at as like a voice of reason, a voice of respect. And I find it really interesting that you have a lot to say about digital technology and the impacts that it's had for the worse. But you're also like looking towards these solutions, something like A-Slice, which is like powered by metadata, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like what's your relationship with technology? Are you the kind of person who is open-minded to everything? Are you skeptical, late or early adopter? I mean, I'm absolutely open-minded. It's just like... If you abuse the the tools that we have in a digital world to, you know, then I, I find them pointless. But like, you know, we, we were even talking about AI before we walked in here and I said, you know, AI could quickly replace some things. But for the people who use it as a tool for a greater knowledge base or a better creativity or when they're stuck to find a solution, I'm all about it. Like the negative, let's say, with digital DJing was it became really easy to be a DJ. You could invest nothing. You could download a crack plugin pop it on your computer, now on your phone even, download some stolen music, and you could call yourself a DJ. So that's the negative. The positive is now somebody from very far away in a country where they maybe couldn't get techniques 20 years ago or find records can now attempt to be a DJ. And they also might end up being the next amazing artist that we discover. So there's a positive and a negative to everything. And I just think you have to be let's say whoever the gatekeepers are of our community, the magazines, the writers, the, the people who are, you know, talking about new talent, you know, stop judging it on the likes on social media and like actually do some digging and like prepare, like we talked about, you know, prepare and listen and try to discover some of the things. So 
Yeah, I mean, the, the digital world exists. We're never going to go backwards. Like, at some point, I'm sure I argued about digital versus vinyl when I first started touring as a vinyl DJ. But I've, over the years, gone into being a digital DJ. So I can't argue those things anymore. I mean, the, there's definitely benefits to the digital world. I, I just think you have to be smart about how you use it and what you use it for. And then the people judging those creations need to understand what's fake and what's real. Mm-hmm. What are your um, thoughts or perhaps like words of advice perhaps for people who are earlier on in their careers about how do you think people can approach these technologies and these innovations in a way that still foregrounds their values or still foregrounds something that is more reflective of who they are at their core? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, well, I think first you have to discover what your values even are. So, I mean, we go back to, you know, if you just grab all the tools and copy what everyone else is doing, but don't have your own individual voice, vision, or identity yet, then it really doesn't matter because you're just another version of somebody else that's already there that can already market themselves better than you or or can, you know, download that crack faster than you. Who knows? The reality is, is I think, again, it just takes time to discover your voice, your vision, your tools to express those things and how you talk as an artist. And, and that takes time. And I think maybe that's the hardest thing in the generational digital age is everyone is pushed to get everything now, 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 fast. I don't mean BPMs, just like fast. Everything comes to me fast. Except for the few exceptions to the rule who break the mold and are amazing from the get-go. Most people aren't. And they just need time to develop. So I hate to say, you know, I've said it in a, in a few other places, but like do what you do because you love it not for the goal of success. Mm -hmm. Just do it because you love it. If you do that, you will get good at it and you will, I have to believe the universe will give you whatever you're supposed to get out of it. Don't just run for the finish line always. Like that's why we have a bunch of filler entertainers instead of artists right now. Mm -hmm. You were talking before about artists needing to figure out their inner voice. Like if you had to personify your inner voice or describe it, what would it be? That's hard. That's a tough one. Good question. Nice. <laughs> I don't even know if I could describe it because like there's so many indescribable things that I do again because I, I subconsciously believe in them or I believe them to be right, whether that be, you know, right or morally right or whatever they might be, but they just happen naturally. And at this point, you know, it's just who I am. It's just who I've grown into. And and I feel like looking back, the people who know me from before any of this success would tell you I'm the same person, just a grown version of that person. That I had some of those same characteristics when I was in my teens, in my 20s, but I kept growing and maturing those ideas and visions without even being aware at times that I was. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I wish I could describe it, but I don't know if I can. You know, you're talking about the people who were around you in the earlier days in Minneapolis. I want to get a sense of, like, the role that the scene or community or maybe it's specific cities or scenes in specific cities, because a lot of the work that you've done, it's kind of been you at the forefront, but you've always been very thoughtful, I would say, and very kind of considered when referencing being part of a community, part of a scene. Like, I would love to hear you talk about the role that that plays to you and maybe how it's also evolved through your career. Yeah, I mean, you know, being in Central Europe, like, I know there's scenes that I don't see because maybe I'm 
already out of their capacity of like interest or financially they can't bring me to be a part of those things. But coming from and growing up in the underground scene in the US, like I really understood the value of community. And when I first you know, found the music, it was through a, a teen night at a club and I got lucky. Like I walked outside and there was flyers for really commercial parties and flyers for an underground party. I somehow picked the, the right flyer. It was a total accident. So I found my way to the underground scene. I may have ended up there over time, but I got like a, a express lane to the underground. You know, I, w I was always the dancer on the side of the sound system, like dancing, but watching the DJ and watching the, you know, how, how they would manipulate things and what it would do to the sound. But then after some time, I would be there at the end of the party and I would help with the cleanup. And, you know, maybe I'd get invited to help with the setup. And then I started to understand all the things that went in. And I knew it was never just this one person. You know, and I think as DJs, we forget that. We show up and play, but we forget that, like, the janitor who cleaned that venue is a part of the success of that night. The bartender, the bar back, the door person, the coat check person, they are all part of the magic that is created for us to be on that stage and shine. But without them, we don't even matter, honestly. And I just realized that very quickly, and I stuck with... You know, when I was ready to start throwing my first parties, I got to ask somebody in the community, hey, who do I call for sound? Who do I call for lights? How do I get a hold of this DJ? And they willingly help me. Music is not a competition. These days, it feels like a competition. It is not a competition. You know, all of us supporting each other in some way, whether that be through events, music, a slice, whatever it might be, like that's letting all of us grow and and like showing that you know we're all we're all in this together in some way because otherwise what, what are you one dj in an empty room playing to yourself you know you need the community really you need the you need those people they're the ones who buy the tickets you know so yeah i always talk about community because that's how i was raised and i see the importance and it's like what i said earlier if all this ended today i have a community to go back to i think if you ask a lot of successful djs today do they have that they might not actually have that because they might not have been raised in one mm -hmm. they just sat in their you know private space looking at the world through their devices and being like i want that instead of actually spending time cleaning up the party at 6 a.m you've spoken <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You've spoken on quite a few times in the press about the current ecosystem of things like festivals and the expectations that audiences have of festival sets and also the expectations placed on artists having to kind of compress an entire uh, sensibility or an entire journey into an hour or, or 90 minutes. To what degree do you think that what you're talking about, community, is being lost or replaced with something that's more kind of compressed and like, you know, quote unquote value added or whatever. I mean, I see way more communities in how I define them when I travel outside of Central Europe. I see them in South Africa when I go. I see them in South America. I see them in other countries when I go there because maybe they're behind the time of what Central Europe's dance scene is. But I actually so value those because I get to feel that energy again Everything now is an industry here. There's so much money behind it. There's so many people who eat off of this music. And so in turn, everything is dollars and cents. I don't have a problem with, I mean, I do have a problem with festivals, but I, I don't have a problem with festivals. I just wish they didn't affect our clubs and our communities as much as they do, but, but they do. And again, breeding the artist or the entertainer 
if all you're giving people is 90 minute sets, then you're going to breed a bunch of entertainers for the moment. Music is going to be made for the camera moment. DJs are going to play tracks for the camera moment. Everyone's going to end up acting for the camera moment instead of, again, building art, creativity, community in a club for periods of sets that like force artistry, force community, force connection with each other. When you're in one room with one heartbeat and you're all synced, like that's beautiful. And maybe you can catch that for a few minutes at a festival, but you're already running to the next stage to catch the next thing. And festivals don't have most. When I say festival, big festivals, and I do still play at them, I, I'm not completely out of them, but big festivals do not breed community. They are just breeding you know, high ticket sales, overpriced DJs, and short sets. You go to a, a small thousand person festival in the woods somewhere, that's different. Let's not define that as the festival we're talking about. Okay, let's let's change tack. Well, actually, no. Let, let's stay on that for a moment because you. I think you mentioned something really interesting about, again, kind of going back to this idea of time and the relevance that time plays. You're kind of known for these like epic, long-ranging, Bergheim closing type of sets. Do you think that that is kind of, I don't know, is that like an antidote or some kind of like response to this other movement that you were just talking about? No, I mean, I, I never knew I was capable of those things until I was put in those positions. Like getting raised in the U.S., same thing. Most DJ sets in Minnesota, let's say clubs closed at 2 a.m. We had good underground parties, but most DJs were bred to play one hour. And what do you do in one hour? You show up after the DJ, the DJ before you, and you just want to show that you can play a little harder, a little faster, and then you end up breeding that. It was only when I started to leave the Midwest and experience other cities where I could play two hours, then three hours, then Bergheim four hours, then six hours, then eight hours, then 13 hours was my longest set. I couldn't do that all the time, but to be pushed through my limits tested my ability as an artist. And keeping that dance floor occupied and interested and weaving in and out of things, you know, I don't think you know you can do that until you're put in that position. Like, you may have thousands of records. It doesn't mean you can stay interesting for 13 hours. Mm -hmm. I, I still think you have to have something to say through the music. You have to have an emotion to share. Yeah, I, I didn't do that consciously. I just didn't know until I was put in that place that I actually could. We don't have much time left, I think about 10 minutes, but we do have space if a couple of people wanted to ask questions. There'll be a microphone floating around the room, um, so just pop your hand up. But I guess as, as a final question from me, what is the, the future that you're imagining? Like if we're thinking about all of the projects that you're involved in, all of the approaches that you have, the philosophies, the values, what is the kind of ideal future that you see for this scene, for this sound, this yeah. kind of community that you love? I think the only way this all works is if people start to think for themselves, stop paying attention to everybody else, and start to put their support behind, like, put your money where your mouth is. Buy the ticket to the events you want to see succeed. Go support the artists you really want to see flourish. And, you know, stop following everybody else. Like, stop being sheep. It's most of the world, unfortunately, the reality, the majority are sheep. They, they just live in this, you know, realm of following everything and making it easy, picking the easy button. But I think if you want to see real community, real artistry and real integrity, you have to support each other some way, somehow. And um, 
having my success, I felt a responsibility to give back in some way, whether it have been doing the SOS conference or doing a slice or any of these things. It's I'm in a power position. What can I do to influence things for the better? When I die, I want my legacy to show that I tried at least and that the community is getting behind that. So in my best future, I hope people realize, you know, the need to help each other. Lovely. Were there any audience questions? Okay, I'm seeing a couple of hands going up. Hello. Hello. Um, quick question. So you did mention how there's all the fast techno going on and a lot of the parties right now are geared toward that sound, even in like a bigger city like in New York right now. So if there are certain, I guess, like sounds you want to play and you're not able to throw your own events, like do you have advice on like expanding internationally or finding other gigs where you have basically more opportunities to, opportunities to play I mean, remember that you're not the only one out there having that same feeling. So you have to find the other people who have that same feeling and join into that. Again, it all leads back to community because we're not going to change the people who are somewhere else. Like, why try to convince somebody to do something different than they're already doing? There's no point. Instead, spend the energy and the time connecting with people that are like-minded in that context of we can be allies. We can figure out a way to like present what we believe in, in our own way, because that's the beauty. I mean, DIY it. You know, maybe you don't have the, the ability to throw your own event, but maybe you can meet other people who as a collective have a way to present what you want or can know other people that can help you present that. Because just remember, you're not the only one out there feeling it, you know, and there's got to be somebody out there that you can find. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think we've got time for one more question. I'm asking myself if there is a time where a DJ has to define or label the genre of music they're mixing or is it not necessary and you just do your thing? The, the only reason for labeling a genre, the media created that. You know, people wanted a way to write about something and make it really clear. And I remember going into record stores back in the day when it used to just be really simple, like house, techno, trance, drum and bass, this, that. And I would go dig into multiple places. And then at some point they started dividing it like minimal techno, hard techno, fast techno, Chicago techno. Yeah, cool, maybe it helps. But the reality is certain people would find their genre and never look outside of it. And to me, I discover music looking outside my genre. I discover music listening to other things outside of techno 100%. So unless you have to for the media or for a mix or for some descriptor, no, you don't have to describe anything. Like, just do you. I think the biggest compliment I've ever had as an artist was like when I did two live PAs in my life, three. And when I did the live PA, somebody came up to me and was like, that sounds like you. And when I would DJ and people would hear a track, they're like, oh, I heard this track, it sounds like you. To me then, whatever voice you've chosen, you've made it yours. And then when somebody hears something, they're like, oh yeah, that's you. So it doesn't matter the genre label. Thank you. There might be time for one more. There's people we got one in the back, the over back there, yes. waving. Hey guys, I'm Malek from Slovenia, techno artist. I don't actually have a question, but I just want to say that I 100% agree with everything that you were saying. Thank you. So thanks for that. And also thank you for creating a slice. Thank you. Now I got like Richie Hotin paying me very generously 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I earn more from a slice than I actually do from uh, like releasing an AP on Beatport. So that's very cool. Amazing. Yeah, so thanks for that. And uh, I sampled your voice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and, I'm go and I'm making a track. Uh, who, who, Make sure to report it in A Slice. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, who wants to be a DJ? Uh, and you're saying like everybody's going to be a DJ. So the track is going to be called Who's Going to Be a DJ? <laughs> who wants to be a DJ? <laughs> so thank you. No, it's, am it's amazing to hear. Like one of the most heartening things to hear is running A Slice can be very difficult and very overwhelming at times. But to get messages or hear somebody say it's working, that's amazing because that's the goal of it is to get is to make it work and like the techno community was the incubator for this because I'm trusted in this community but we see how far a slice can reach and so like to hear somebody from Slovenia in Amsterdam tell me they're getting paid amazing that's what we want to hear so thank My you man. for coming yeah, thank you everyone for being here. I know you could have chose a hundred other topics about font size and uh, headliner status, but you chose to come here, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this RA Exchange with DVS1. Many thanks to Christine Kikare for moderating and to Sebastian Weiss and the team at ADE for hosting this talk. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Black Russian, which came out on Ben Clock's Clockworks label in 2014. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next time, take care.